Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing today? I think we have a little time delay, maybe. Anyway, we'll see see how this works. I'm doing good, Bruce. It's a beautiful day out there. I have not been out that much, although I was skating this morning. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sad to report uh, I've lost my earbuds that I had for almost a year, which is which is almost a miracle to have a pair of earbuds for one year. What happened? Uh, I don't know. If I knew where they, I'd lost them, I would I would tell you, and I would be happy. Such is life. I keep having them fall out, and one of these days they're going to fall out into the bush, and I'm going to be in trouble. But it hasn't ha- that hasn't happened yet. Often I catch them on the way down, old old goalie reflexes, right? But, oh, that's good. <laughs> still getting used to the earbuds thing. Much more at home with the wired ones that generally don't go anywhere. Yeah, there's some advantage of the, uh, advantages of those ones as well. Mm-hmm. Um, is my lips sticking up with my voice? Because you're a little bit delayed on my screen. It's a little bit odd, but hopefully yeah. that's... We'll see what happens. Yep, yeah, not bad. Not okay, bad. good. Yeah, I sometimes lose one out my ear, and I'm doing the stairs, so it kind mm-hmm. of, in the river valley, so it kind of tumbles down the hill. That's always fun. <laughs> All right, Bruce, we've got news to talk about Oilers. We do. News. Ryan Murray has signed with the Edmonton Oilers a one-year deal at the NHL minimum, which is how much? What's the NHL minimum now? $750,000. So not nothing. Like you can understand why veteran players want to keep playing for that kind of dough, but it would be uh, several cuts below uh, uh, what he would have made at his peak. I wonder what kind of priority uh, NHL veterans will try to get the NHL in the next CBA for the rank and file of the uh, players to rise up and get the, the NHL minimum to be like the key issue. For um, for the union, I wonder if that's a possibility because we're seeing real halves, like they're all halves, right? Um, mm-hmm. But they're all also individuals. You have to remember at the absolute peak of a of a of a pyramid, they get steeper and steeper and steeper as you go up. Like the, just the you know on these major junior teams, which are crammed with people who have dedicated their childhood to hockey and spent tens of thousands of dollars pursuing that. There's only usually one or two guys who are going to have maybe one guy on the team that's going to have an extended NHL career. It's just it's just so incredibly difficult to make the NHL. So Ryan Murray, like that's a lot. Some people might say seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. It's a lot of money, but he is an elite, absolutely elite performer. Uh, not the most elite, but an elite performer. Bruce, what do you make of the signing? Do you like it or yeah. not? Career earnings twenty two million dollars. So. You know, like he's he's done it in the uh, uh, over the course of his career. Although, if you'd have projected his career earnings ten years ago, when he was the second overall draft choice in the in the National Hockey League, uh, you might have expected him to have done significantly more than that. Uh, what he has done is play in the NHL for nine years. Played one game in the AHL, which I'm—I bet you any money was a rehab assignment—and he's played 432 NHL games. Um, so the Oilers are getting a good uh, 
proven NHL veteran player with, uh, uh, you know, his sort of game management skills were were elite plus when he was 18 years old, David. So I think they're getting that kind of player. Uh, but unfortunately, what they're also getting is a guy who's season after season has been derailed by injuries. He's only averaged 48 games per season that he's been in the NHL. And uh, it seems like he misses 20 or 30 games almost every year. Something happens. Uh, so they're getting uh, they're getting what they pay for. They're getting you know a player that that fills the need in one direction, uh, but who does not uh, you know doesn't fill all their needs. Let's put it that way. You know he's <clears throat> I think a guy who can be relied on to play a, a quiet third pairing kind of game as needed. Uh, when he's available. So in terms of like the pros and cons of this move, mm-hmm. Bruce, the only cons you, you can see are, I, I think, two, one individual and two, two groups of players. Or mm-hmm. one group, one individual and one group of players. That individual is NHL owner Daryl Cates. So um, you sign a lot of these players for this kind of million dollars or less, $1.1 million mm-hmm. or less. And you can send them to the minors. You could send yeah. an endless, you could send 20 of these guys to the minors, like Ryan Murray, and it wouldn't mm-hmm. hit your cap at all. It does not hit right. your cap. So the only person that pays for that is Daryl Cates. He ends up paying a lot of money for, if these guys get sent to the minors, as, as will happen, he ends up paying a lot of money for for minor league players. So there's really, you know, from, the, from Ken Holland and the coach's perspective, Jay Woodcroft, certainly from Jay Woodcroft's perspective, from the NHL, coach's perspective this just gives him another bullet in the gun Mm -hmm. he he's got another veteran player if there's a lot of injuries he's Mm -hmm. got a veteran he can slot in there he can um up the competition level at camp for everybody by bringing in guys like this so there's Mm -hmm. just for the for the coach and for the idea of winning at the nhl level there's a lot of pros like there's a lot of plus marks for this for Mm -hmm. this move It, it can cost kates the more guys you bring like guys you bring in but for Woodcroft, great move. The other negative, though, is all of these guys who have been working in the minors uh, for a long time to yeah. get their shot at it. Uh, Marcus Niemelainen, Philip Broberry, um, uh, Dmitry Samarukov, who j- you just wrote about t- in today's yeah. post. Um, those being the three who come to mind. They're all yeah. hoping. Slater Cuckoo, who's who, he's yeah. actually in the Ryan Murray category. He's another veteran in the Ryan Murray category. But all these guys who have been working hard to get a shot at the NHL, it just got a lot tougher for them to to make the roster because there's a guy here who's played that many NHL games, got all that experience. Coach likes coaches like experienced defensemen, so. But it's kind of that's life, right? That's the NHL. Yeah. This this isn't this is about winning. So it's now from the organi- from Ken Holland's point of view, though you do have to develop these young guys. I think. They do have to have a chance to yeah. to play in the NHL to see what you have, mm-hmm. and that becomes just a little less likely for each of them now that they're going to get like for Nima Linen and Sam Maruka, for instance, they're going to get that shot that they've been working for and craving, and it might hurt the Oilers in a big in the bigger picture in that that opportunity could be denied a player for for whatever reason, like they just make the wrong decision and they don't right. give that player that chance and he never steps up and makes it. So that's the, th- those are the only downsides, but there's a lot of, even mm-hmm. if Ryan Murray has been injured most of his career, 
like you look at his points per 60 last year, even strength, Bruce, he was one of the weakest defensemen in the NHL for putting up points. He's like just off the charts weak in that category. And this is a guy who was compared to Scott Niedermeyer when he was coming out of uh, major junior hockey. He was an outstanding skater. It was, well, he was the second overall pick, Ryan Murray, and there was a lot of excitement. Yeah, I, I just him. don't see it as a good style comp. I mean, he did have a lot going for him. Well, he wasn't he a really super smooth skater? Isn't that his wasn't mm-hmm, that yeah. calling card? Or isn't yeah, it? Yeah, he looked like an he, NHLer when he was 17, 17 years old. But I'm not sure he was quite the dynamic um, playmaker that Scott Niedermeyer was. I mean, that's a high bar. But, uh, you know, he was... You know, second overall draft choice. So, uh, but last year, I mean, you could say, well, how in the heck can you play on Colorado Avalanche for half the season and get zero goals and four assists on the team that's going to go yeah. on to win the uh, to win the Stanley Cup? Well, his uh, uh, just bringing up his uh, regular line mates at even strength, his most common line mates at even strength. And this give you an idea of the role that he had in. Colorado, and he played, well, obviously, Darcy Kemper the most with. Eric Johnson was his most common D partner, a former number one overall draft pick, who's now a, a reliable veteran uh, defenseman. So their most common defense partner was Jack Johnson, the number three overall former pick, who's now become a veteran, sort of reliable depth defender. And those Johnsons played in the playoffs, and Murray was the odd man out. Uh, his most common form forwards teammates were Logan O'Connor. That's a pretty good clue. Uh, Nazem Kadri, a little bit of a surprise, like he was a top player. Um, Tyson Jost, JT Comfer, Alex Newhook, Darren Helm. Uh, I mean, this is a guy who's playing in the bottom with bottom six forwards when he's out, out on the ice. And basically, uh, my take is that he had basically the role in Colorado that Chris Russell had here in Edmonton. I'm saying they're the same player, identical style, but uh, the role of the the veteran D-man whose job is to go out there and quiet the game down and make sure nothing happens while the stars are resting up on the bench. And that was largely Chris Russell's role here. And, of course, he was uh, injury prone veteran as well as as uh, time went on uh, all those block shots and and uh, uh, high uh, high leverage plays in 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 tight you know they took a toll on the guy he took a pounding and uh, 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 he gradually became more and more racked up well that's been Ryan Murray his whole career uh, but Murray is about six years younger than Chris Russell and the contract he just signed is a full half million dollars below the 1.25 that Russell made last year. I'm not talking about the 4 by 4 that was such a lightning rod of controversy in this town, but the, the one extra year that he got at 1.25 to serve as the seventh veteran, uh, you know, stick him in an all-situations guy, uh, that Russell largely lived up to that contract. Well, now they found another guy who's going to do it right at the league minimum. And that's the kind of sort of incremental savings that they need to make, uh, given all of the, uh, uh, the uh, cap hit increases that are uh, studded around elsewhere in the roster. You know, they got five guys that basically took about a $12 million increase in uh, in cap hit. So they've got to find 
uh, they got to find savings and you can't save any more than you got a player at a minimum salary. Like you say, they can move him out and he's not on the cap at all. When he's in the, in the roster, he is, uh, uh, when he's on the roster, he's um, at the minimum. And so that's, you know, that's as, that's as good as you can really do on the, uh, on the, uh, on the salary cap front. So, has Russell signed anywhere else, Bruce? I can't. Uh, he has not, and he has not retired or anything. Like it sounds like he still wants to play, but I would say his chances of returning to Edmonton just became zero. Like I was thinking all along that maybe he's going to show up as a PTO or, you know, in Edmonton to fill this role, because otherwise all they have, like you say, mainly is young guys. I got Slater Cuckoo, who's a complete wild card at this point. And then they got all these young fellows like uh, Brobery and uh, Samorkov and uh, uh, Niemelainen on the left side, and really sort of young guys on the right side as well that are depth guys in Vincent DeHarnay, Philip Kemp, Michael Kesslering. So there really was kind of a, a, a space in there between sort of the top five defenders that they got under contract and and the rest, there was there just wasn't much veteran content in there, and that now has been addressed in a significant way. I wouldn't have mind if they brought back Russell. Like honestly, in mm-hmm. this at the same salary, I thought um, the same played. salary as Murray, you mean, or at the Correct. same salary made before? Same salary as as uh, as Murray, right? Um, you know, he he's a solid, super solid defensive defenseman still, mm-hmm. and um, you know. Maybe Murray's a better pick. I can't say I didn't watch Ryan Murray play last year closely. I can't remember mm-hmm. him playing. So um, in the in the Colorado Avs Oilers games. So I, I just I'm okay with with them signing him, but it would have been fine with Chris Russell as well. Mm-hmm. So think about you can watch a game that Ryan Murray is playing in and completely not notice the guy. Uh-huh. Yeah, yes. I mean, if you were scouting him or something, then yeah, sure. But if you're, I mean, you're just watching a Columbus Blue Jackets game, uh, you really have to sort of focus and see what is it that Ryan Murray's out there because what he's doing is a long, long chain of little things and just making the right play, make the right play, move the puck, you know, keep it simple. And and to my experience, uh, and you know, I, I never watched a game specifically to watch that player, nor have I ever watched a game where he was on my team, which he's now about to be. I'll be able to tell you a lot more about Ryan Murray in a month or two about his game uh, than I can right now. What I, all I'll say is that he has the ability to disappear within a game, uh, as did Chris Russell and guys like that. And I will add that that is not, by no means is that all a bad thing. Yeah, you, know, you want a d- defensive defenseman to disappear in a game the same way you want your offensive lineman to disappear in a football game. Because you only notice him when, either when he's taking a holding penalty or when he gets beaten for a sack, right? When he's doing his job, you just said, okay, <laughs> we'll assume everything's going well there. And, and uh, with uh, with Ryan Murray, like he, he's just a low event, uh, was always at least my impression of him. I mean, he's been in the other conference all this time and two Columbus games a year and chances were good. He was hurt for at least one of them. Didn't get a lot of exposure to the to the guy. Bruce, Sam Gagne, more mm-hmm. news. Yes. 
We thought he might be one of these seven hundred fifty thousand dollar signings for the Oilers, but he chose to sign with the Winnipeg Jets. What's your take on that? Well, I thought he was, you know, not a bad choice to be one of those, you know, bottom of the roster forwards, kind of the Ryan Murray of the forward set, uh, where. They're looking not so much for a guy who disappears in the game, but a guy who can do something sporadically, contribute offensively when he is in there, but also yeah. uh, uh, take his turn where he's not in there and, and you know, carry on and be ready for the next opportunity. And I didn't mind Gagne for that role. Like, to me, he would have been an upgrade on a couple guys they did have in there last year, like Kyle Turris, like, uh, you know. Uh, Sam Gagne just signed for 900 grand below what uh, the Oilers paid Kyle Turris last year to do not very much. And, you know, th- that would be an upgrade. Uh, to me, it would be an upgrade on Derek Broussard, although maybe that's a little closer, but at that, you know, NHL minimum again that Gagne signed for, not bad. Now, from his perspective, he played 81 games last year, so maybe he'd rather go to a team where he's more likely to be in the top 12 forwards as opposed to being the the number 13 guy on the roster who's going to be in and out a little bit, uh, which is probably more where he projected to be in Edmonton. So yeah. we don't know how serious uh, um, discussions ever got. All we have is on reasonably good authority that the two sides did express interest and there was some kind of, uh, of, uh, of interaction between the two camps. And, how you know, whether it came down to a choice between Winnipeg or Edmonton. There was nothing like that out there. All we know today is that uh, unlike yesterday when he was on the market and a possibility, the chances now are zero um, that he'll be here. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it would have been fun to see him play his thousandth game here, which he'll probably be doing in this upcoming season and things like that. But there are other players that they can go out and get who can also do that job if they think they need one more depth forward it's far from he was the only choice but just to me he was one of the better ones that i thought they might be able to get at minimum which is in fact what he signed for i i don't i don't think he was a good fit on the oilers other than Mm -hmm. the dressing room fit and the Mm -hmm. sentimental fit um he's not i don't see him as a center Mm -hmm. so uh because of that I'm skeptical of his ability to really help the Oilers. I mean, you can find the Oilers have all kinds of guys they can slot in on the wing and do as well as probably Sam Gagne did would, would do. Although he had a good points per sixty last year, sure but I is. do think I do think that they could. There's lots of players they can play, and and you know, there's a salary cap consideration. But you know, there's Dylan Holloway. I'd like to see him get a get some ice time, and he can also play center. Dylan Holloway. Now, can they fit him right. under the cap? That's another question, but. I just, I think if they're going to bring in another veteran, uh, bring him in, bring in a guy at center who's who's primarily a center, and or can play center. And now he was talked about being a penalty killer. Yeah, yeah, he, he did. Was on P- the worst PK in the NHL last year. Mm-hmm. So we don't, you know, uh, maybe he could, maybe he's, maybe that's his game now. Maybe he's really figured it out. And I, I do want to say this. So congratulations to Gagne for playing that many games in the NHL. He's almost at a thousand, which is an incredible landmark for any any NHL hockey player. Like that's just such a you know difficult achievement to to reach that level of play. He's probably going to make it in Winnipeg this year. He probably wouldn't have made it in Edmonton. Um, 
he probably did make this decision based on playing time, I'm guessing. So um, good luck to him in, in his new stop. But I don't think he was the best bet for the Oilers, Bruce. I no, I'm not sure he was the best bet. I, I'm, I was just comparing him to some of the some of the spots that were opening up at the bottom of the roster. Yeah. Now, unlike you, I'm not too concerned about the center position, and I don't know if they need a whole lot more depth at it. Because, you know, if you, if you list out the guys that are on the roster who whose primary position is center, who've either been converted to wing or they're wingers that can play center, there's a lot of guys. I mean, if you, if you go down and, and, and you can just start your roster with uh, McDavid, Dreisaitl, and Nugent Hopkins in your core 12, and now, now you've got Ryan McLeod as your fourth-line center. That's a strong fourth-line center. Like, that's strength in each line. Like, McDavid's the best center in the league. Drysaddle would be, by a large margin, the best second-line center in the league, and he'd be the best center on most teams. It's like having Mark Messier in your 2C spot, right? I mean, wow. And then uh, I think Nuge uh, for for 3C, uh, strong. And then you got all these other guys, like tons of them, like, like Derek Ryan and um, uh, Devin Shore that can play center. Uh, they've got... Um, uh, Brad Malone. Brad, Brad Malone, they got the guy Greg that McKeg. they... McKeg, yeah, I was scrambling for his name all of a sudden. I was looking at it earlier. Greg McKeg, that's the center. I'm not saying these are great players. I'm just saying these are NHL experienced, NHL proven guys that can fill in at the center position. And when you got guys like Dreisaitl and, and, uh, and McDavid and Nugent Hopkins, at least two of the three are going to be playing center, it's always only bottom six that you're going to be looking to fill, yeah. and usually fourth or even fifth line depth positions. Like I think without signing anybody else who can play center, I mean, Dylan Holloway's on the list too, right? He's potentially a center. He is. So without signing anybody else who can play center, I think the Oilers' depth at the center position is the envy of the NHL. That is definitely true. Maybe I'm just a little greedy there, Bruce, perhaps. Oh, even well, Janmark. like to have that. Yeah. Janmark yeah, even can play Janmark center. used to play center. Yeah, I, I'm a little greedy. He's about I the must... ninth choice. Zach Hyman could probably play center in a pinch. Like, he's a smart hockey player. I think he's listed as the center, Hyman, but he's become a uh, – he can play either wing, and that's now what he's defaulted to. Because Did he he's... play center in college? Is that it? Maybe I, I just see. I mean, there's yeah. so many forwards that are listed as center because they they enter a database and they're a center on their yeah. high school team or wherever they're coming from, and they just stay listed as centers even though they become full time wingers. So I always look at the face off column just to give an idea of how much did the guy actually play in the pivot position. And there's the odd exception of a guy who plays wing but takes draws, but uh, for the most part, that kind of tells you uh, how much. Uh, how much center they played, but the the Oilers do have like eight uh, forwards. I think it's eight guys that have played a significant amount of center in the NHL. So we're continuing to write about the prospects, Bruce, and mm. let's talk about a couple um, that are similar. And we wrote that we wrote about kind of similar players in um, Matvey Petrov. You wrote about, and I wrote about uh, Carter Savoy, mm. and um, they're they're both. There's some similarities, I think. They're both exceptional. They're both drafted low, first of all. Right. Uh, Savoy was drafted wow. 100th and Petrov mm-hmm. 168th. Is that it? 180. 180. So they're both drafted really low, where you don't expect 
you're just getting really lucky if you if you get an NHL player out of that. So for for whatever reason, both these players weren't that valued in their draft year compared to other players their age. Since that time, though, you'd have to say if there was a redraft, both players mm-hmm. would be drafted considerably Way. higher. Way. Yeah, second round, second round, no later than second round, probably for both of them. So um, Savoy for sure. Savoy for sure, and if Petrov yeah. has it builds on this year because he's mm-hmm. got one more year. Savoy. Um, so let's start with Petrov though, Bruce. Um, oh. oh, just wait. I just want to talk about this kind of player. Th- yeah. These are very interesting players in that they don't. The knock is their skating and their defensive work, generally speaking, and they're sometimes and their, their size and, and their size. Often. But some of these, sometimes these players, we can all, we can think of players drafted low who had all mm-hmm. the same kind of stuff going for them, generally mm-hmm. speaking, very similar stuff, but became great top line scorers in the NHL. And mm-hmm. they do it because they have great shots and unbelievable hockey intelligence. They are able to find that quiet spot on the ice, as it's called, where mm-hmm. you know they're sneaking around. Puck comes to the stick, boom, right in the net. Yep. And I'm talking about Brad Hall is the biggest example wow. of that in recent years, and Luke Robitaille is <laughs> another one. I can't, I don't know. Now, there's, there are players though, kind of the lesser, you know, it's, it's not Brad Hall or Bust here. There are lesser oh. players like that, and it, like Mike Hoffman uh, oh, yeah. comes to mind, who played sniper. in Florida. Yeah, sniper. We, we've seen Hoffman not do a heck of a lot in games until he scores. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miro Shatan is another player played for the Oilers kind of mm-hmm. kind of in this mold of these guys you don't really necessarily notice them until they're putting the puck in the net and mm-hmm. they don't offer a lot except they can score so they don't have to be to be in the NHL they don't have to be on the first of the they don't have to necessarily um what was I going to say they they have to be on the first they don't have to be on the first line they can be on the second line as well that was my point but they right. don't have they can, they're not going to make it if it's the third line or the fourth line, they're not going to be there because they just don't offer enough as checkers and, and in, in other roles that third and fourth line players are asked to fill to do that. But they can be second line guys. So we could see as a Savoy or a Petrov become a first or a second line winger on the Oilers, more, more likely second line in a couple of years. And uh, you know what? It's a, it's a possibility. So let's go to Petrov. What, what, what can you say about him, Bruce? Well, you can say that the Oilers got lucky in the sense that uh, after um, North Bay Battalion picked him uh, first overall in the CHL import draft in uh, 2020. And one thing you need to know about the CHL import draft is that the worst team of the 60 in the CHL gets the first pick. So that guy, it's like, you know, it's like NHL team getting the first pick in the draft. It goes, you know, in theory, it goes to the worst team in the league. So he was coming into a to a very poor team. Uh, but in 2020, the OHL season got completely ca- cancelled. So instead of coming over, he stayed back in in Russia. Uh, he played in their junior league, and he had a pretty okay season, but not a great one. I think he had 22 goals, 24 assists, and uh, and uh, 50-some games, so not even a point per game in that league. And he went from being, you know, a a high profile in the sense that he was number one in the CHL draft, and he would have obviously been a feature player on North Bay the moment he arrived, Uh, but he didn't get that kind of scrutiny. He didn't play in the top prospects game. He didn't, uh, you know, he wasn't 
scouted the way uh, OHL players get intensely scouted during their draft year. He was completely under the radar in Russia, and I'm pretty sure that probably cost him two or three rounds in the draft. That he fell all the way to the sixth round was kind of unbelievable for uh, the pedigree that he had. So this year, when he did come over, safely already in the uh, Oilers' uh, list, uh, he ripped it up. He had a hat trick and, a, and an incredible behind-the-back assist in his very first OHL game, and he just started putting the puck in the net with regularity. He wound up with 40 goals, 50 assists in 63 games. Big, big-time plus player in the regular season. And the Oilers already saw enough that by November 11th, of his draft plus one season, they signed this guy to an entry-level contract, sixth-round pick. Like normally you see the guys that get signed in the same calendar year that they were drafted and are almost always the first-rounders, and that's pretty much it. And here he was, sixth-round pick, and he was already under contract last November. And so they, it didn't take the orders long to say, yeah, we want to, we want to see this kid for, for three more years after this one or four more. And, in fact, because they did draft him out of Russia because he hadn't come over, the Oilers do have the option of putting him in the AHL this upcoming season at 19. They don't have to. It's not NHL or bust the way it is for guys they draft out of the CHL. They do have that option. I don't think they'll use it because they have Carter Savoy, uh, because they have Xavier Borgo, uh, because they have several young uh, wingers graduating into the Bakersfield Condors and the, the minor league system currently is flush with scoring wingers and there's no reason to rush Petrov into that situation even as it would be a free year of sort of pro hockey exposure or as long as he didn't play 10 NHL games it wouldn't even it wouldn't even move the needle on his contract they would be able to slide the contract the same way as if they sent him back but I think in this specific circumstance because of the uh uh, depth of prospects of that type that are already in the system that the wise thing for the Oilers to do and what I think Ken Holland will do is send him back to North Bay for a second year of CHL and there he'll, his two line mates will have moved on to the pro ranks and he'll be the guy and it'll be a good test for him in that way. I was just looking uh, at the current NHL top scorers to see, like, because my my examples, uh, Brad Hall and Luke Robitaille, are, of course, from the long, <laughs> yeah, long ago. As my my Here as my examples, <laughs> as my examples tend to be, Bruce, from the eighties. Mandatory seventies sports references. But these were from the eighties and nineties, because Robitaille eighties and nineties. Yeah. yeah. Or, excuse me, Hall and Robitaille eighties and nineties. But in the in the modern NHL, um, mm-hmm. I'm just looking at the list. So uh, the the closest I can come for really top scores last year were uh, Joe Pavelski and Matt Zuccarello, and and so they 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 are players who I think are mainly they're players who do it with their mind, you know, by uh, and 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 strenuous effort too, because mm-hmm. it's you know finding those soft spots in the NHL. You're not just kind of doing it. You're not mm-hmm. just lazing about doing it. You're working to get there, especially in today's game. So um, there mm-hmm. still is this kind of player uh, who's at the NHL level. So Carter Savoy, Bruce, is um, – he just had a – he since he w- was tearing up the a- AJHL he, uh, as in his draft year. 53 was, goals? Yeah. He, he, I think he, he – um, 
he was drafted so low because the knock on him was that he uh, cheated for offense and was lazy. And he was also small and he didn't skate that well by by comparative standards. But and he wasn't he, he his fitness score. results were poor as well. Yeah, all he could do was score. All he could do yeah. was <laughs> so um and um when he went to college hockey in Denver, that's all he kept doing. I mean, mm-hmm. he got about uh, 0.85 points per game as a freshman. And then last year he raised that to 1.15 points per game. In terms of um, under 20 years of age point scorers, there was only one guy who did better than Carter Savoy in the NCAA last year, and that was Ben Yers. Um, oh, yeah, number two overall from Seattle the year before yeah. last. Yeah. So he went to Denver, and he has ripped it up. And, I, and I've seen um, – I watched the final the, – the, the two Frozen Four games that he played in because I'd watched him – I probably watched uh, – five or six or seven games, as had you watched a handful of games mm-hmm. the year before his freshman yes. year. I just wanted to see him again. Mm-hmm. And he's he is he is such an interesting hockey player because when he gets the puck on his stick, he is fabulous. Mm-hmm. Uh, he get even he gets the puck in tight positions and he makes a nice pass. Just invariably he's really, really good. Now as a four checker, he actually showed a bit. He he gets in there hard on the four check and can pop the mm-hmm. puck. But he's not super fast. He's super fast in pursuit of the puck. Um, but he is not a super fast player with the puck. Uh, but when he, when he gets it, he's able to find, at that level at least, time and space yeah. to make a nice play. Now, of course, there's all kinds of players who in major, junior, and college hockey can, can get themselves time and space to make mm-hmm. a nice play. Recently, yeah. two examples of that from the owner's farm system, Cooper Marodi and Tyler Benson, yeah. um, who even at the AHL level, we're, we're able to find that time and space and create all kinds of great plays, but neither mm-hmm. has been able to translate it, that at the NHL level yet. And yeah. they're not trending towards doing that at this point either. So chances are both Petrov and Savoy, you know, they're just, they're not going to be able to, to keep rising up. It's just so difficult to do so. But I mean, they have stepped up from their, um, their their draft position considerably and in the frozen four uh savoy scored the goal that, that the overtime goal by going mm-hmm. hard to the net firing the puck on net and getting cashing in on his rebound that they, they got uh, his denver team into the final game right. and they won that game he is a highly highly skilled hockey player at the ahl level where he's going to be this year there's there's intense competition there's mm-hmm. uh there's, there's lots of very, very good hockey players. Uh, so we'll see. He, he's got to be able to break into the top six um, this year in the AHL. And and you, you think, well, that, that, that'll probably happen. But it, a lot of the times, Bruce, it doesn't happen. We're, like People were very high on Kiro Maximov, right. um, who was similarly drafted low and then had a really great major junior season, just scored yeah. the light out. He never was able to break out of bottom pairing, the bottom forward lines in the HL, and he's no longer with the Oilers. So, you know, there's a, just a recent example of a similar mm-hmm. kind of uh, scorer, just yeah. couldn't even get it done at the HL level. And maybe that's Carter Savoy, maybe even there at the HL, he's not going to be able to, to find his way. But this is a really nice, this is a great prospect to have. You know, someone who has ripped it up at the NCAA level, that's a really uh, significant thing to do as a young player like that. And um, 
I, I got my fingers crossed and my hopes up for Carter Savoy in the HL this year. I hope he gets I hope he gets into the top six. I think he probably will. Yeah, I like his chances at the AHL level for sure. Uh, I mean, he he adapted so well and so quickly to NC2A, and uh, he beat some of the knocks against him that the scouts had. Like uh, uh, one of them was to, to uh, put it colloquially that he liked home cooking, that he uh, you know he lived at home and you know and he was maybe uh, 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 not the uh, uh, super fit specimen that you usually get at the NHL combine. Uh, but when when he didn't finally move away, which he only did when he went to Denver University after uh, after his draft, uh, he changed his routine. He took the whole thing way more seriously. Like I'm sure the Oilers had some discussions with him, and he probably read some of those reports too. Uh, got some motivation from that. Uh, but from the sounds of it, he's, I don't know, fitness fanatic, but it's certainly not an issue anymore in any way, shape or form. So it's not like we're talking about uh, Bartolo Colon here saying, you know, all I have to do is pitch, you know. Well, <laughs> as a hockey player, there's lots that you have to do. But what he can do exceptionally well is fire the pill. And uh, what I saw in the uh, college games that we tracked on Instat, uh uh, year before last was a real capacity that he had for picking the spot, both the place to shoot from and when to let fly with the shot. And he had this w- way, and I, I'm sure he still does, just kind of nonchalantly when he had the puck drifting, not, not seemingly going anywhere, but into the shooting position, just a little bit closer, maybe a slightly better angle, and then wham, and being able to beat the goalie at that level. Now, whether you're going to be able to beat an NHL goalie with a shot from the left circle consistently, well, I have my doubts, but uh, I also don't suppose that he's done developing and learning new tricks either. I mean, this is a this is a gifted, offensive-minded player, and he's uh, uh, very interest, going to be a very interesting yeah. player to track. My bet is that he struggles at the beginning, and by mid-season or earlier, he's well-established in the top six. He's got to get on their power play too yeah, as well, too. right? He, he needs yeah. the power play time. That's where he's in an ace. So it's yeah, it's a tall order. It's not easy, but he's only he's 20 years old, and uh, he's he's rising like you know like a bullet. Like he just he's been getting better and better. Like I think he would be probably a high second round draft pick in a redraft at this point. So um, it was a strong draft that year, but um, yeah, he's he's come a long way. Bruce, today you wrote about uh, Dmitry Samarukov, who's, mm-hmm. who uh, we've talked about a lot on this podcast. Um, he he was has developed um, in fits and starts, I will say. Major Junior just took off in his last year. Major Junior became maybe the best defenseman in the CHL. Uh, took his team to the Memorial Very Cup close, yeah. and uh, was certainly in that conversation. Yes. Then he struggled in a year in Bakersfield. He goes over to Russia the next year in the, in the KHL and plays for Seska uh, in Moscow. He was fantastic. He he had been known as kind of an erratic player and just became the super steady metronomic passer of the puck, shutting, mm-hmm. shutting down of the attack um, player in a, in a tough league, you know, which is equivalent to the AHL, I think, close to the AHL. 
uh, maybe even better than the HL. I'm not sure, but but um, yeah, I would say better. Yeah, better than the HL. So he yeah. he in a in a in a tough pro league, he became a very good hockey player, mm-hmm. a very consistent hockey player. Last year he gets um, injured. He breaks his jaw, I think, in training camp, and which is such a huge setback. And then he ends the ends the year with another injury, does he not? Yes. And and uh, so he just keeps. And this is the story of hockey players. They get injured mm-hmm. and, and they fail to realize their potential. But mm-hmm. he, he's he got some advantages, Bruce, does he not, in, in heading into the season in terms of making the Oilers? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the injury thing, I mean, his in, his year in Russia en- ended with a shoulder injury. Yeah. Missed the end of the season and the playoffs, and he was tearing up. He had a 38-14 to 14 on-ice goal differential at even strength, like just... 73% gold shares. That's almost off the charts. And then he got hurt, missed the end of the season. Then he came over here, of course, last year. We finally had a regular training camp. And it looked like he had a sort of outside chance of making the team. Probably wouldn't because he didn't need to, uh, He was waiver exempt. And there were other guys that wouldn't. So he was probably going to go down. Uh, well, he did go down in the first shift of the first exhibition game when he uh, uh, made a big hit in the neutral zone. And came away with a broken orbital bone, cheekbone. Uh, took the brunt of the contact in his facial area. And that was that, training camp over. By the time he got back on the ice, it was the end of October. Uh, he was in Bakersfield. He was wearing a shield, and he was feeling his way around. So it took him a while to get going. And uh, a third of the way through his season, he was minus five uh, with four points in 17 games. Uh, by the end of the season, he was plus 16 with 18 points in 51 games. His scoring picked up, and he became a real solid plus player. And he and then he was paired largely every game that I saw. It seemed like he was paired with Vincent DeHarnay, and the two of them were just dominant. And it's hard to know which of the two was sort of doing the heavy lifting. I mean, uh, by eye, they were a solid partnership, and uh, they they uh, were more than capable of getting the job done. So, and then as he was really becoming sort of the workhorse, um, at least pairing on that team, he hurts the other shoulder at the uh, early April. This is the end of the season and all the playoffs for Bakersfield. So season ending injury in Russia, season beginning injury in Edmonton, season ending injury in Bakersfield. Like how's that for the Dmitry Smorkov hat trick? So the question now becomes, is he made of glass? And if he is, he'll get hurt again and he'll, you know, just fall out of the equation. You know, is he Ryan Murray, uh, you know, in, you know, in a different different time, but the same sad story? Uh, or is it just a matter that he, got, he had some bad luck and he's ready to come out the other side of it, like some players sometimes do? Uh, this year, it's he that has the advantage, if you will, in training camp of not being waiver exempt. And for that reason, the team will be reluctant to put him on waivers to send him out to start the season when they have other guys that who are waiver exempt, like Marcus Niemelainen, like Benson DeHarnay, who they can simply assign to Bakersfield without having to go through that 24-hour white-knuckle period of, is he going to clear you know, so to me, he would be the natural guy to keep around on the team, uh, 
to give him the first shot at it. And if he fails, then yeah, then all bets are off. You wave the guy and you move on to the next. And I think I made the point in the last podcast, but will again, that's basically what happened to forward last year when the Oilers kept up Tyler Benson, Brendan Perlini, and sent out originally Ryan McLeod because McLeod was the one guy they had that they didn't need to to uh, clear through waivers. They could just send him out. So uh, Samorikov this year is in the position that Tyler Benson was last year. And I mean, on, on a surface, you might say, well, that's not good. But I mean, from his perspective, it's, you know, uh, it's the time is now to show his stuff. And it's in the team's interest to give him that chance so that they know what they got before they're putting on waivers. And I just love to see him get a, you know, just some NHL games and actually see what we've got. The, the glimpses we got from afar are pretty tantalizing. Big, mobile, nasty defenseman with skill. I mean, you mean you'd like, like to see him I mean, get more at, at a distance? He looks like Steve Smith looked in, in yeah. 1984. You know, you don't know what he is, but you sure like what you see. You mean you'd like to see him get more than one period in the NHL? Yeah, like I'd like to see him get more than four shifts, period. David. <laughs> Disastrous. I that was so tough. Yeah, that oh. was really tough. He had a, just a terrible debut where he, he I think he was respon- mm-hmm. responsible for a couple goals against. He made gaffes and then he got mm-hmm. benched. So mm-hmm. anyway, that happens. Like he, he that's not Dmitry Samarukov. I, I think the coaches made a gaffe there, David. And I mentioned this in my yeah, post. I agree. They got burned twice by the same line. It was a high skill line. Robert Thomas, uh, Jordan Cairo, and and. Uh, uh, Vladimir Tarasenko. I mean, these are pretty good players, and they j- absolutely ate the kid's lunch on the on on the goal. He tried to stand up and make a play, and they just were too fast and went around him three on one. Wham! In the net, and like two minutes later, some workoffs out on the ice against the same three guys. Like, what is the defense coach doing? Like. Pick your spots, man. And then after he gets burned the second time, they just nail him to the bench for the rest of the game. And at no point did they have a situation where the Oilers are rushing the puck up the ice, they're dumping the puck in. St. Louis, the second line, is leaving the ice on line change. The first line was already out there. They're bringing in a bot, you know, their fourth line. Throw the kid over the boards and give him a shift. You know, I mean, geez, do something. I just didn't like how they handled that. That's a fair, a stinging critique, Bruce, but a fair one of the coaches. I I note that he makes, like, if he makes, he's at seven hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars, mm-hmm. so it's not much more than the minimum. So that's right. not going to keep him out of the NHL. In fact, mm-hmm. most of the young guys, DeHarnay and Nimalainen, are right near the minimum as well. Yep. The only one, the only one higher than it significantly of these of uh, AHL defensemen, is Kesselring. Who's not? Who's a year away at least from the mm-hmm. from the NHL anyway? But he's at nine twenty five. It's interesting. Like with these young players, it it starts to like you, you. They go for the bonus money in the contract, right? Well, that could keep Dylan Holloway out of the NHL this year. Sure. You have to be careful um, in certain when you're the agent in negotiating these deals. I I think because Dylan Holloway, if he was at the league minimum, he'd be making the NHL this year. I think. There's a chance he's not going to because the, the orders won't be able to fit his his salary and his bonus uh, bonuses under the salary cap heading into the season. So that's a tough call because, you know, their job is to get as much as they can for these players. And I fully understand that. But you have to also be you got to be thinking about you got to be sharp. And especially right now in the NHL where just <laughs> there's so much money. There's way more money given out in contracts than there is cap space, mm-hmm. it seems like, in the NHL right now. And uh, 
it's 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 going to come down to dollars, cap hit dollars for a lot of these players, whether they make these teams or not. I read somewhere the other day that of the top 28 teams on the, on salary cap, they have an average of 100.1% of the cap ceiling committed to players. Now, some of that will go into LTIR and such, as I understand it. Uh, but there, there, there's so many teams. It's like most of the teams in the league that are really crunched because now we've had this year, the cap finding went up by a measly $1 million after being locked at the same figure for three years. In the meantime, guys are getting raises. You know, I mean, as mentioned, the Oilers got five players that they brought back that have $12 million more in cap hit than they had last year. Well, how do you do that when the cap ceiling's only rising by $1 million? You, you know, it's a, it's a tough game. And one of the ways that you do do it is not just having the million-dollar players, but literally having players at the minimum. And I'm sure that uh, agents are now advising their young players that if their goal is to make the NHL, that to, to accept a minimum salary is actually a smart play by them because yeah. they don't want to have any uh, any disincentive for the NHL team to use them. So a guy like Tyler Benson, for instance, last year he made 750000 he got a qualifying offer from the Oilers, which is 105%, which is what they have to offer for guys making under a million dollars. So his qualifying offer was like 787.5, I guess. And when he does sign with the Oilers, he signs for 750. And it's to his advantage that there isn't that extra cushion of, of uh, money that's going to block him getting sent up. He wants to be a no-stress guy that's minimum when he's in there. And, of course, when they send him out, it's no longer a consequence. But there's no deterrent built into a minimum salary. And so more and more, Peter Chiarelli started doing this, and I don't suppose he was the only GM who did, but he was the one where I really started to notice it, where guys like Brandon Davis and, and Jordan Ostley were signing their second contracts for less than the first ones. And it took me a while to sort of, why in the heck would the guy even sign that when he's entitled to more? But, I mean, from the player's perspective, in your if you're in the AHL and you can't get a game in the NHL because of your contract, it doesn't really matter what is the figure on that contract. What you want is that opportunity to get in the NHL, establish yourself, and then sign contracts in the future. And, you know, for a guy like Jordan Osterley, it worked out pretty well. You know, he, that, you know, it wasn't... It didn't block him. Let's put it this way, and it's possible for uh, for a contract to uh, to block a young player. So uh, uh, that's where uh, uh, you see even guys like um, uh, Ryan Murray to go full circle on today, or Sam Gagne, established veterans. You've seen them come in right at the bare minimum, and that's their best chance of finding a spot on a team. You raised Jordan Osterley, Bruce. That's an interesting guy. I, it kind of plays into a, a post that I'm working on. And um, I think that um, one of the key things for an NHL team is when you have these defensemen in their kind of um, just heading into their peak years or early in their peak years. So this is like 22 to 28 in that range of player um, you know, four years after draft until they're, you know, 28, um, where, where they're still, for a defenseman, can be early in your prime. The defenseman can keep going strong until they're 31, 32, uh, sometimes 33, 34. 
And um, do you make the right decision in that moment on these players? Do you do you keep the right ones um, yeah. on your team? Do you make the right calls on them? Or do you make the wrong calls? And when you're looking at the other teams, do you bring in the right guy or do you do you bring in the wrong guy? And um, so it's it's uh, I'm going to say that the Oilers, um, generally speaking, in the history of the franchise have done very poorly at this with a few notable exceptions. They have often given up on players, Bruce, uh, in this age group who are better else. They, they leave here and they're better elsewhere. They be, they become much better players elsewhere and on that list or, or better players at least elsewhere and so on that list the most obvious one is is jeff petrie and what i'm looking into in this post is you know can cody cc who's who came in can he be the orders jeff petrie can he be the mm-hmm. kind of the you know the stop the the ghost of jeff petrie haunting this team and be the ghostbuster here because how often do we hear still people lament jeff petrie jeff petrie jeff petrie and, and it's hard to blame them because he became a true top pairing defenseman in Montreal. He was already top four in, in Edmonton, but he really blossomed in Montreal. And But he's not the only one. You know, you look over the years, oh, sure. uh, you know, there's um, there's uh, Jordan Osterley is an example of it. He beca- he was he was OK and he became a, a much more significant player in other NHL cities. Tom Pody, Dan McGillis, Greg DeVries. Uh, Matt Green, uh, Yanni Pitkinen even. You know, these are all players who weren't that valued, as valued in Edmonton, and they and they moved on. And some of them, like Greg DeVries, became a pretty significant player in Denver. So the owners have, generally speaking, they have, they've made more mistakes and they've gotten it right. When I'm looking, looking at the roster over the years, Justin Schultz could be another example, I think, who blossomed in Pittsburgh um, for a time. Mm-hmm. The ones who did better here, and, and we're hoping CeCe's on this list, is uh, that includes Jason Smith, Craig Muni, Jason Smith, and Craig Muni. First two and, names on my list. Well, they're the only, like, I can't find a lot of other names is the thing. Mm-hmm. And so so they stick out in our heads. We've brought, we've brought up Jason Smith and Craig Muni, you and I, probably 50 times over the years in this podcast, you know, hoping that the latest guy who's come in as a 24 25 or 26 yeah. year old is going to be that player for the Oilers. That's usually, the usually it's the Oilers getting rid of a player and him becoming a, you know, it seems mm-hmm. like they get rid of these kind of skilled defensemen who don't fit, fit the mold of the somehow Oiler defenseman, rugged Oiler defenseman. I don't know what they're looking for, but they, they get rid of these skilled guys That's and then true. they blossom, you know, Matt Green, was though a rugged defenseman who was mm-hmm. developing into a nice player, and then they got they got rid of him and and Lyle Richardson, mm-hmm. Luke Richardson, excuse me, Luke Richardson and um, uh, Jeff Bukaboom are in that same category where they got rid of these guys when they're in their mid twenties and they went on to have long and successful careers. Normie McIver is another guy they moved out um, and um, just had a great year oh. in Ottawa. Then he got injured, so the damage was somewhat contained in that way. So, Bruce, it's just a long list. So, the owners have moved out a number of players in recent years. Matt Benning, Ethan Bear, Caleb Jones. And the fear is, the fear has been yep. with each of them. Each of those have had like factions of ardent supporters who think mm-hmm. this, this is the next Jeff, Jeff Petrie, right? This is, this is going to haunt us like Jeff Petrie haunted us. What do you think? How has it worked out so far, in your opinion, with, with those guys moving on? Are we haunted yet by that, or is it kind of... Uh, in the category of, meh, it's not that big a loss. 
Uh, I wouldn't say haunted. I would say um, I continue to follow their careers with interest, mm -hmm. uh, as I do uh, Jordan Osterley or Brandon Davidson, who signed the KHL this week, by the way, uh, uh, after pursuing the dream. Uh, but none of them, I mean, there was thought that Bear and Jones would move into top four roles with their new NHL clubs this year, but I don't think that really happened. They both played, they both played in the NHL, they, you know, they both contributed in various ways to their teams, but uh, uh, I don't know that they did anything extraordinary. And yet you never know, you know, when you when you let go of the wrong guy and you look around and go, holy crap, that guy's playing 23 minutes for a contender, how'd that happen? Um, like, I mean, I, I'll go back even further than you. Dave Langevin, who they lost. They always had in the oh, WHA, that's a good one, and they Chris. lost in that that reverse NHL uh, consumes WHA backwards expansion draft where New York Islanders, who really didn't need a whole lot of help, took Dave Langevin off of Edmonton, and he went on to win four Stanley Cups in New York. And, you know, and he was a third-pairing guy there, but a real good one. That Oilers sure could have used that player. And but he was, you know, mid twenties at that time, and and we, season ticket holders, had lived through the pain and suffering of of Dave Langevin learning how to play pro hockey out of college, and we saw all the, you know, all the, all the all the painful lessons that he learned along the way, and just when he was finally getting to the point where you know this guy's pretty good, you know, and he. He's not getting beat that often, and he takes his pound of flesh now and again. That's not a bad guy to have, and then he was gone. And so, but that was an extraordinary case. You know, they didn't let him go. They didn't trade him. They just kind of got, I was going to say Bettman's, but they got Ziegler'd on that one. I have the strong memory of Dave Langevin when he got traded to the Islanders. And I think it's him that I'm thinking of. Uh -huh. Lumley, Dave Lumley was a winger on the Oilers and a, and yep. a and a sneaky, tough guy. Really, he was an agitator, a little dirty now and then. Anyway, the puck came around to him on the boards in the, the defensive zone, which is a really tough play for the winger to make, right? Because the mm -hmm. defenseman's coming, pounding in to hit you. Yeah. And Langevin just smoked him one play. Mm -hmm. He pinches down and he smokes Lumley. Mm -hmm. The next the puck comes around the boards <laughs> again and Lumsey's going to get it. This time he, he just puts up his elbow and his stick and moves to the side and he catches Langevin under the neck as Langevin's going by and just absolutely slams him to the ice. <laughs> yeah, well, Lumley. Lumley was, he was maybe the very best player on the Oilers, winger on the Oilers for taking that ring around pass inside the blue line and making the safe play and getting it out. He was very reliable at that sort of thing. You know, he played in Montreal, Nova Scotia Voyager's system for a few years by then, and he had it drilled in him pretty good. Uh, but he also was sneaky, dirty, with the stick, his nickname was Lumber. Lumber. We used to call him Lumber. <laughs> so he would lay the lumber on periodically well, you know, when he got the chance. So, you know his famous quote, right? Hmm? You know, probably he played with a Victoriaville hockey stick, and his famous quote was, five feet of Victor Victoriaville, the great equalizer." Because <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't a very big guy by NHL standards, but man, he he was a, a, a stick man. In the mm -hmm. NHL, yes. you carve them up pretty good. Yeah, not quite at Wayne Cashman levels, but uh, approaching that. Um, that brings me the, the um, seventy-two series is in the news right now. Wayne Cashman reminds you of that. Mm -hmm. It's fiftieth anniversary, Bruce, of the seventy-two series, and there's some 
people Today, doing yeah, stuff. September 2nd, USSR people... 7, Canada 3. This is where hockey fans totally date themselves. Of course, if you have a strong memory of this, as both you and I do, uh, but this this is a long time ago now. But it was such a significant like Bruce. I would not be the hockey fan. I don't. I don't think I'd be the hockey fan I am today without yeah. that series. It mm-hmm. absolutely was a kind of a searing moment for me. This moment where everybody in Canada became obsessed mm-hmm. with this series, uh, this dramatic series between the you know the the communist. Soviet Union collectivist hockey team against the NHL's best. And mm-hmm. it was, I, we, uh, a few years ago, I watched yes. all those games again and, and broke down the scoring chances mm-hmm. plus minus. Sports Logique is doing a series now where they're taking advanced stats to this series. Awesome. And it's, We're I learning can't, lots. Yeah. And one thing we'll see is something you would never see in the modern NHL. You will see extreme statistical differences between yes. the teams. You see that their approaches were different by just by how they track yeah. their, their stats. I'm sure of it. Nowadays, it is, so, hockey is so uh, hybrid that you know all of these countries have played with and against each other for so long now that that uh, some of those differences have been ironed out. It was like they were speaking two different languages out there. Now you know, kind of everybody speaks at least broken English, right? But back then, it was like that the language of hockey was different that Russia played. Than what Canada played. It was just, it was very, it was foreign and that sort of legitimate first definition of that word. It really was. And uh, they're, even if I, I can't usually watch old hockey games, like even the old Oilers Stanley Cup games, they don't really hold my interest. I don't, mm-hmm. I can't, I don't find it that interesting. But I was able to sit down and watch all eight of these games again a few years ago. And I did mm-hmm. uh, my own advanced stats, look at them, looking at the scoring chances in the series and what stood out from that was just how incredibly uh, important the line of everyone knew this but it just drove this home the the line of bobby clark paul henderson and ron ellis which was the checking line was the dominant line for team canada by far the best two-way line now there was other great mm-hmm. two-way forwards phil esposito was the best forward in that series mm-hmm. and I, and um he put on a monumental performance um i don't know if we may we may have never seen the equal in international hockey of the hockey that Phil Esposito played in that series. Uh, he was such a dominant force in the series. But the games are so compelling. They're so they're so freaking weird. Bruce is the mm-hmm. best way to put it. The players without their helmets for one thing, but just right. the amount of puck handling, the amount of stick oh, handling in the games. <laughs> These big hairy guys stick handling around the ice. It's just weird. And the Russian team, of course, playing, it's like a game of, of soccer, you know, constantly passing mm-hmm. back, moving around the puck, possessing the puck, trying never to give away the puck. And Team Canada thundering around with their, their sideburns and their long hair and smashing into them and plowing into the slot to score goals. It's fascinating. It's, it is so 1972. Come right down to Team Canada's weirdly whack wild and incredible hockey sweaters which no team has worn since then um mm. kind of the half maple leaf which was yes, a dramatic I dramatic well. and i think mm. a gorgeous design a, like 70s design uh it just screamed out that that era so um there's going to be uh, some documentaries i guess on cbc a four-part documentary on it so i'm, I'm going to probably serious. watch most of that so <clears throat> yeah well that was uh the eight games were all played in september uh the first four in Canada, of course, and then there was a two-week break during which uh, 
Canada played a couple of exhibition games in Sweden, and your man Wayne Cashman, I still remember this, he got speared in the tongue by Elf Sterner of Sweden. And the Swedes were busy uh, blaming uh, Canada for their style of play, which was pretty ferocious. And uh, Sterner, this was apparently a defensive move by him to protect himself from getting killed by Cashman, maybe. I don't know. But Cashman came out of it with stitches in his tongue. It's not something you see very often in hockey, which is why I still remember it. But um, uh, so there was no love lost really anywhere. Uh, it, when Canada went to Europe, uh, but the games, especially against the Russians, were at an intensity level that I have rarely seen. I'd say maybe the only games I ever saw that was were even more intense for this was when Russia played, or sorry, Soviet Union played Czechoslovakia in the 1969 World Championships after the Prague Spring. And that was a game where I, I, I was I watched those games. They were on Wide World of Sports after the fact. And I was oh, really? enough to watch them just to see. And I, that, honestly, I, it looked like a game where the Czech players, Czechoslovak players, because of course they're from both regions of what was then one country, uh, looked like they were willing to die to win that game. Like there was nothing they wouldn't do to beat beat their, their, their fierce, hated rivals uh, in, in those games. It was, it was fascinating to see. And, and, of course, Soviet Union had that kind of effect on other countries, too. USA, Canada, you know, there's some very dramatic and, and memorable games uh, with, uh, with those countries as well. It would be like Ukraine playing Russia right now in a, in a hockey game. Like, it's yeah, not, yeah. Well, not, close to it, that, wasn't a, it wasn't a hot war, like, because yeah. they just moved in to Prague. They just moved into the to Czechoslovakia, mm-hmm. it's called then, and took over. Like, there wasn't the, the slaughter that we're seeing in Russia right now, but there was and the hatred. Alexander Dubček kind of disappeared after that. That was kind of the, the, uh, the leader of the resistance in Czechoslovakia and Prague. So, which, by the way, the Prague Spring of 1968, uh, not as many people know this as should. That's a, that is why Yarmir Jagger wore number 68, continues to wear it, I think, his entire career. It was uh, as a memorial of the Prague Spring that happened just, I think, four years before he was born. So. Alrighty, well, those, I don't think the games themselves will be televised, the 72 games, but you can buy the DVDs if you have a DVD player. Uh, yep. If you still have a DVD player hanging around the house, uh, I have the DVDs. I don't have the working DVD players. I still, I point. still have both. <laughs> I don't know if I'll watch it again, but uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun to do. So, so if, if you have memories of that series, anyway, ten years ago now, uh, in September of 2012, that was the 25th anniversary of Canada Cup '87. Another very famous. Oh yeah. In this case, three game series of games between. Uh, uh, Canada and uh, Soviet Union, and by then the the styles of the two teams weren't as completely dramatically different as they were in '72, but they were still very very different. And I happened to do a a, a post on uh, uh, zone entries, watched the game, and just recorded zone entries. And I wrote a post called "Vintage Hockey Through a Modern Lens: Different Styles of USSR Team Canada Revealed in Zone Entry st- Strategies." And and strategy being the Russians like to carry 
pass the puck over the blue line. None of this dump it in, thump the boards, and, and uh, try and win the puck back. It was all about the possession, and they were a team that uh, weren't averse uh, to a strategy. We now see sometimes in overtime in the NHL, taking the puck out of the zone, just reorganizing in the neutral zone and, and coming on in another wave because they just want to, they valued possession of the puck above all else. And whereas Canada's approach was more, they value the position of the puck as much as the possession of the puck. You know, if you dump it into the other team's end, well, they're not going to score from there. And you can go in and, you know, pound on their defenseman for a while, maybe win it back and create a chance. And in the meantime, not give up a whole lot. So it just was two very different approaches. And that just showed up even in, in the numbers. Uh, from game one, for instance, Russia had... Uh, uh, 58 carries in over the blue line, right? And they just dumped it in 15 times, whereas Canada had 32 carries and 40 dump-ins. Like, they, you know, it was wow. just a... what a difference. A, a dramatic difference that showed up in, uh, uh, in, the, uh, in just how they got to, how how they established possession in the offensive zone. In my beer league, Bruce, I'll have... 50 dump-ins for every carry, for every single carry. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't even as much as they passed it, and Canada actually passed it uh, uh, more than Russia did. But Russia liked to get at the guy at the blue line to bring it in over the line and then set it up in the zone. So even that was was uh, was was uh, different. Even a successful sort of uh, gain the line under control, they did it different one team to the other. Alrighty, did we cover so, it at all? Cult of hockey, we're ten years ahead of sport logic, David. There you go. In terms of yeah, yeah. So we've been digging into these games for a while. I don't know when I did my own uh, uh, assessment. I think it was about seven or eight years ago. It's quite a mm-hmm. while ago. Probably, maybe it was uh, during the lockout. In we did a lot of this stuff during the lot, like the lockout. Twenty twelve, yeah. Well, that would have been the fortieth anniversary. That's when this was also the twenty fifth anniversary of the Canada. Yeah, Cup. I think that's when I tapes. did that. Did that work? So. And of course, the Russians were, um, you know, they just had such tremendous hockey players and Harlamov and Petrov, Mihailov. You know, the one of the interesting things I've learned since then is the the Russians out of that series have their own version yeah. of Steve Smith. Now, Steve Smith is known in Edmonton for being a really great defenseman, and he, and he mm-hmm. was. But he's also known for one play where he, he banked the puck in off Grant Fuhrer's pad into the Oilers' net, and that was the most significant factor probably in losing to the Calgary Flames in 1986. It's a very famous play. But the Russians have someone there who they blame, who is their Steve Smith, and they blame this player for that winning goal in Game 8 uh, that Paul Henderson scored with. Really? 34 his name yeah yes. Yuri Lyapkin yeah okay is infamous in Russia as the defenseman I don't know exactly what he did wrong I'd have to watch the goal against again but they blame him and he he, he didn't live that down um uh-huh. Yuri he didn't clean up the he didn't clean up the net front that Henderson got two whacks at the rebound I think and somebody did a flyby and it was must have been him I was more concentrating on the puck and what the Canadian guys were doing and Trechak, but I, I don't think it was a very, very good coverage play by the Russians. So presumably Lyapkin's at the center of that problem. Yeah, he is still alive. Maybe he will live it down. 
eventually. <laughs> he's got he's got some time. Maybe they'll revisit the thing and say this was not really his fault. The yeah. other one, one of the other funny things with the Russians in that in that uh, series is um, <laughs> the Russians. I think out if you went total goals for eight games, I think that the Russians either tied them or outscored Team Canada. And the end of the series, the Russians thirty-one. We actually won the series because, in terms of total, total goals. goals in the series, we we ended up with the most goals and There's we beat you guys. What black uh-huh. in, in Moscow, claiming victory by thirty-two goals to thirty-one. <laughs> well, in Canada, Bruce, though, they'd be arrested now for misinformation on the internet for saying that. But uh, either that, isn't that funny? Isn't that? Isn't that isn't that yeah. just tell you so much about the world that, that we have, have always lived in and continue to live in? People torquing and you know, did they really did they really believe that? Did they did anyone really buy that, or was that just the state machine putting out that crap? Like I don't know, maybe maybe people actually thought. Well, yeah, when you got a chance to, as will surely happen, come September twenty eighth, watch the uh, watch the celebration. Uh, at the end of the game by Canada and also watch the reaction of the Russian players and uh, tell me that they the, the Soviets thought they'd won the series and sorry I won't believe you they look pretty crestfallen I agree Bruce I completely agree and uh, losing three games in a row at the end on uh, home ice on by home one ice. goal yeah that was fantastic <laughs> Like, if it had been three games piece and two ties, if that last game had stayed 5-5, then the Russians would could claim more goals to win the series. The way the way they did claim the Rendezvous 87, by the way, uh, which was a 1-1 split with uh, one more goal by the Russians. Uh, but they uh, uh, they lost four games to three. So If you're wondering who Lyapkin is, if, mm. if you look at the what I've called the greatest sports photograph of all time and that's paul henderson both hands in his in the air uh being embraced by yvonne cornway and i feel a mm-hmm. little emotional just looking at the picture now and talking about it liapkin trechak's on the ice and liapkin's the defenseman thinking oh shit <laughs> there goes my reputation for life he's in the photo too he's just standing there it's frank so lennon's funny. photograph i think from the either i think he was with the toronto star if i'm not mistaken but it's uh it's a, it's that great photograph, Yuri Pur, Yuri Lyapkin. Bruce, we wrote about that in 2011. Oh, okay. Uh, I think. Anyway. 2012 for me. Yeah. 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 There were certainly some uh, very memorable moments in that uh, series, and not all of them did Canada proud. I have to say that there were some. Uh, nefarious tactics that were employed from time to time but well that's this is our propaganda right that that you know that we won and that you know and story where good, guy, good guys won. Know, we're the good guys the good guys won and the, but the good guys also broke valeri harlamov's ankle uh yes. from direct order from the coach to bobby clark to do something about that guy and um so there you go uh there's propaganda on both sides as they're Usually is. Well, Bruce, let's let's uh, let's leave it there, and uh, 
We'll see if there's more news next time. Other than that, we'll just keep writing about these prospects. And I'm going to do this. I'm doing this series of posts on on uh, looking at, you know, defensemen. How have the Oilers done over the years in terms of this age group of defensemen, retaining them or trading for them mm-hmm. overall? And looking at CC and Kulak, who has a chance. It looks like like the good news right now is like mm-hmm. things are kicking up right now. But if Bear Jones or Bear or Jones, especially if they turn out to be top four demon, there's going to be lots of uh, angst about that in oil country. Uh, it doesn't, you know, in their first years in Carolina and um, Chicago, they they were they went kind of sideways. Um, they, they stayed about the same level as they had been in Edmonton. So we'll see what happens with those players going forward. Bruce, thanks for talking today. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast.